Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Moving toward the end of the first chapter of the revelation given to John, the Apostle is introduced to some additional elements in the vision, namely the stars and the lampstands. We'll find out what these represent as we continue our study today, so let's join Pastor Phil in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, didn't offer a goat or a bull or a lamb for us. He offered himself as the Lamb of God who took away our sin. He went to the cross. He died. The third day rose again. And then 40 days later, he ascended back to the Father where he sat down at the Father's right hand and he now makes what for us? Intercession. He's making intercession for us as our great high priest. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10 verse 14, for by how many offerings? For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Once you receive Jesus Christ, your sins are washed away. How many of your sins? All of them. All of our sins have been nailed to his cross, taken out of the way, and as such, because I'm in Christ, he has now perfected me forever. Oh, but I still sin. That's right. It goes on to say you're being sanctified. But positionally, you're in Christ. From a positional standpoint, you're perfect. You're sinless. Your sins have been completely washed away, dealt with. You are no longer. Your account has been marked paid in full. Now, every time we blow it, because we're still going to blow it, we still live in these bodies of death. So I'm still going to sin on the earth. And every time I sin, the devil steps forward and wants to condemn me. But my great high priest... Jesus Christ says, Father, don't listen to that. I've already taken care of that sin. It's already under my blood. And that's why it says in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, all the way to the end. Aren't you glad that it says that? I mean, you know, some people think that Jesus picks me up when I get saved, but if I'm not faithful, I can slip through his fingers and be lost. Folks, he doesn't drop me. Somewhere between earth and glory. He, he grabs onto me and he takes me all the way. He is able to finish what he starts. Didn't we just say that? He is the beginning and the end. He can start anything he wants. And he started a work in my life when I gave my heart to Christ. And he promised me he was going to see it all the way through to completion. That someday I'm going to see him face to face and I'm going to be made like him when I see him as he is. I'm going to have a glorified body. I'm not going to wrestle with sin anymore. It's going to be over with. So he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is always making intercession for me because I keep blowing it. But he's always, Father, don't even listen to that. 
I've already taken care of it. Now, I think that the best way to view this passage is probably to combine these offices into one. I see here the great priestly ministry of Jesus, you know, based on the the garments he's wearing, the robes of a priest. But I also see here the robes of a king or a judge. Because not only did he die for the sins of the saints, which is what his whole high priestly ministry is all about, right? But for those who reject him, he is going to judge them. You know, Jesus is going to be to everybody that has ever lived one of two things. He is either going to be a loving savior or a righteous judge. And that all depends what we do with him. If we receive him as Lord and Savior, he comes in, washes us of our sins, intercedes uh, to the Father on our behalf every single day. He is our loving Savior. He is always with us. He is leading us. He is watching over us. He cares about the smallest details of our life. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares about everything that touches our lives. But if we reject him, he is someday going to be to that person a righteous judge. And I do think that the, uh, the imagery here is not just of a high priest, but one of a judge as well, as we're going to see. So John sees him in these robes, the robes of a king and judge, but also the robes of a high priest. And in verse 14, he goes on. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And again, this is an obvious reference to Daniel 7, verse 9, where Daniel said, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. It's a reference to God the Father. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. The fact that in the Old Testament we have the Father described as the Ancient of Days with hair like wool, and then the New Testament we see Jesus described in that very same way, again, it just tells us they're one and the same God. They are one and the same God. The Greek word translated white is a Greek word that means bright, blazing, brilliant. In the Old Testament, white hair on a man symbolized Age, but it also symbolized wisdom. That's why it was the hoary heads, the white-haired gentlemen, who were the leaders, because they were older, they were wiser, hopefully. Uh, you know, but you know, with age comes wisdom many times. And so we see the imagery here of the white hair speaking of the fact that he's not just very old. Ancient of days means he's eternal. But the white hair signifies the wisdom of God. And the fact that uh, it was blazing white speaks of purity. Purity. White, of course, in the scriptures also denotes purity. So we have here in this image of Jesus' uh, head being white like wool and uh, white as snow. Just as speaks of his eternal nature, his wisdom, and also the purity that he has that is his. He goes on. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This speaks of how God sees everything, how how God's eyes penetrate into the darkest places, into the deepest recesses of our hearts. God sees everything. God sees every sin. God's eyes are penetrating 
with regard to sin and judgment of sin. In Hebrews chapter 4, why don't you turn there? You know, it's very important that we nail down this vision. Since it's so important to chapters 2 and 3, that's where we're spending a little more time looking at each one of these. Because together they make up this incredible picture of our glorified Savior and all that He is. It's important for us to know this. But in Hebrews 4, verse 13, the writer says, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. The Bible says someday every knee is going to bow before Jesus. And every mouth is going to make, everybody's going to have to stand before him and give an account of the time they spend here on the earth. Aren't you glad that you don't have to stand in your own so-called goodness? We stand in the righteousness of Christ. So we won't be judged with the wicked. But we will stand before him to see how faithful we were in living for him. And uh, we will receive our rewards at the Bema seat. But in Matthew 10, verse 26, Jesus said, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. The idea here is that Jesus Christ, with his eyes of fire, his penetrating gaze, searches out sin in his church, And searches out sin in the world. And as the Bible says, judgment begins at the house of God. He will judge his church. And I'm thinking of the the apostate church. I mean, we see today in Christendom across this world, but we'll just leave it here in America. We see a lot of apostasy, don't we? We see uh, churches giving God lip service, but teaching things that are just absolutely unbiblical, idolatrous, even immoral. I mean, we see things going on in the church today that just 10 years ago would have been shocking. And Jesus calls his church to repent. Now, he's talking about the apostate church. And if the the apostate church does not repent, he is going to judge even them. But in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, it says, And to the angel of the church in, in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Uh, In other words, I see what's going on there. There are some things that aren't right in your church. You need to get them right. And we'll study that as we get there. But I just want you to see how that it's speaking not only of him being able to see the unrighteousness in the world, but also uh, in the church. And we're the light of the world. If we're walking in darkness, what hope has the world got to know the truth? But when he comes back to this world, he is going to judge this world. Revelation 19, verse 12. Well, actually, this is the culmination of his judgment. He's been judging the world for the last, I don't know, from chapter 6 through 19. But it says in Revelation 19, verse 12, when he comes back to the earth as the judge and king, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except he himself. Now, along with these lines of judgment, it says in verse 15, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. In other words, brass that was uh, heated in a furnace until it was 
red hot and glowing. His feet, it says. You have to understand that in ancient times, kings sat on thrones that were elevated. And when a person was brought before the king to be judged, they were always underneath his feet in a sense. It signified the fact that the king had authority. In fact, in those days, when a king would conquer another king, he would often have him lay on the ground and put his foot uh, on his neck as a symbol that he was, you know, now in authority over him. But the feet of a king came to symbolize his authority, his authority to judge. And the fact that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, well, in the Old Testament, bronze or brass was always the metal of judgment. Why? Because it was a metal that could be heated very hot. And so whenever you see bronze in the scriptures, think of judgment. Bronze is the metal of judgment. Gold is the metal of kingship. Silver is the metal of redemption. Bronze or brass is the metal of judgment. The fact that Jesus' feet were glowing like brass heated in a furnace symbolized the fact that he had authority to judge. That's the idea. He is a king who has authority to judge sin, and he will someday. Verse 15, John went on to say, And his voice was as the sound of many waters. A few years ago, on a family vacation, we spent a couple of days in Niagara Falls. And if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you know that you can take a boat out onto the lake there, where they get you, you know, they give you a raincoat and everything, and they get you kind of close to where the falls are. And I'm not kidding you, it's so loud, you could yell standing right next to somebody, they, they couldn't even hear what you were saying. That's how loud the waters thunder when they fall over those, you know, and they hit the bottom of, the, of uh, where the lake is. It's incredible, the sound. And what John is saying here is that when Jesus spoke, his voice was like the sound of a great waterfall. It speaks of his authority. He speaks with power and authority, and he will be heard. He must be heard. I'll tell you what, when Jesus comes back, he is going to speak words of authority. It's not going to be like it is today. You know, one of the, one of the saddest periods in Israel's history was the period of the judges. And I think it was one of the blackest periods in their history. And if you study the book of Judges, I think seven times the phrase is mentioned throughout the book, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everybody did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The idea was the king spoke of authority. There was no authority, basically. Everyone was doing whatever they thought was right. Are we living in a society like that today? We have no king in America. What do I mean? God isn't king anymore. His word isn't supreme. People want to, you know, it's whatever they want to do. It's not the Ten Commandments, it's the Ten Suggestions. And if I don't like the suggestion, I'll do something else. We have so many voices today telling us to do all these different things, whatever pleases men. In fact, I was reading on the Internet just the other day. Maybe you saw this article. I couldn't even believe it. Well, I could. It just said what you see today. But the title of the article was... Uh, have sex, do drugs, speaker tells students, men with men, women with women, whatever combination you would like. And it goes on, a guest speaker at an assembly, high school assembly in Boulder, Colorado, 
has told students as young as 14 to go have sex and use drugs, prompting school officials to say they will investigate. Yeah, I hope so. The instructions came from Joel Becker, an associate clinical professor of psychology at the University of California at Los Angeles. He said, I'm going to encourage you to have sex and encourage you to use drugs appropriately. Becker said during his appearance at the school as part of a recent panel sponsored by the University of Colorado. Why am I going to take that position? It's because you're going to do it anyways. He he continued, I think as a psychologist and health educator, it is more important to educate you in, in a direction that you might actually stick to. So I'm going to stay mostly on uh, with the sex side because that is the area I know more about. I want to encourage you to all have healthy sexual behavior and on and on it goes. So it's okay if you sin and engage in destructive behaviors as long as you do it appropriately or respond. I don't know how that works. How do you take drugs but do it responsibly? How do you have sex, which leads to STDs, AIDS, but, you know, do it appropriately? See, this is the society we're living in. It doesn't matter what God has said. There's no king in America. So every man and woman is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. But John sees a picture of Jesus, who is coming again. And when he comes, he will speak with such authority, with such clarity... And there'll be no debating. There'll be no moratoriums to to talk about it. Maybe we'll do it. He is going to rule with a rod of iron. What he says goes. And I can't wait. (laughs) I cannot wait. Verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars. Again, we're not left to try to figure out what these stars are. Because in verse 20, we read that uh, the seven stars are the uh, angels of the seven churches. The word angel there, angels, is angeloi. It's the word we use, that's usually uh, translated angels in the New Testament. However, it could also be translated and is translated many times just messengers, human messengers. I don't think it really is talking about angels. First of all, when it says he has them in his right hand, it doesn't speak of protection. It's speaking of control. Control. And nowhere in the New Testament are angels ever involved in uh, the leadership of churches. Now, certainly all Christians have what we call guardian angels, these angelic ministers that watch over us. Hebrews tells us, I think, chapter 1 or chapter 2. But nowhere in the New Testament are angels ever said to be involved in leadership roles in the church. It's pastors and elders. I just really think that's what's in view here. These messengers, these stars are messengers, or in other words, they are the pastors or the elders of these seven churches. And Jesus holds them in his hand in the sense that he is in control of his church. He is in control of his church. He is the head. And we simply obey him. You should never, ever obey any pastor or leader who is not walking in obedience to Jesus. There is too much celebrity in the church today. We have characters who strut around on stage as pastors or as uh, as evangelists, and they have this persona that, I don't know, people just, you know, they look to these characters as some kind of 
superstars. They're like, you know, Christian rock stars or movie stars in a sense. And it's sad because a lot of these people are not following the Lord. The one who says, I haven't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. The birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Could these characters say that? I don't think so. They're driving the nicest cars, living in the best houses and things. All of the money of widows on fixed incomes who believe in this guy's ministry and send in their last 10 or 15 bucks to support this character. I'll tell you what, I would want to be in their shoes on the day of judgment. It is an awesome responsibility to be a leader in the church of of Jesus Christ. That's why James says, look, don't hurry into the teaching ministry, brethren, because we shall incur the more strict judgment. When I stand up here and claim to speak on behalf of Almighty God, if I am not really faithfully studying the word to find out what God has really said so I can present it to you, if I'm just winging it, or if I'm making things up to, I don't know, gain a following, to tickle ears or whatever it might be, I'm going to stand before God and give an account. And it just tells us how that leadership is such an important thing in the church. That's why one author said, and I quote, These seven men demonstrate the function of spiritual leaders in the church. They are to be instruments through which Christ, the head of the church, mediates his rule. That is why the standards for leadership in the New Testament are so high. Well, in the Old Testament, we read like people, like priests. Or in other words, people are going to reflect their leaders. I have seen this in churches. If a pastor is a very loving person, the congregation tends to be very loving and kind. If a pastor is kind of arrogant and full of himself, the congregation tends to be that way. People take on the characteristics of their leadership. That's why it's so important for us as leaders to walk in humility, not lord it over God's people, but to be servant leaders. Because I want you to follow Jesus. And as long as I'm following Christ, then follow me. But Paul says, look, if I stop following Jesus Christ, you better stop following me. Because you're responsible to him. Not, you know, I am not your Lord. He is your Lord. And as long as I am a faithful under-shepherd, follow me as I follow Christ. But Jesus, of course, is your great shepherd. So John sees the Lord holding in his right hand these, these pastors, controlling them. It's unfortunate a lot of pastors seem to have slipped out of his fingers and are kind of doing their own thing today. They're not letting the Lord control. You know, Tozer said, how did he word it? If the Holy Spirit, we, if we took the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit out from the early church, 90% of what they did would come to a stop. If we took the work of the Holy Spirit out of the modern church, probably 10% would come to a stop. That's because today the church is not being led by the Holy Spirit, is not being governed by the Holy Spirit. You know those lampstands? They're not candlesticks, they were what? Oil-burning lamps. What does oil represent in the Scriptures? Holy Spirit. It speaks of Spirit-filled churches. A Spirit-filled church is a church that is letting the Holy Spirit lead and be in control. A church that Jesus is controlling. He goes on. He says, Not of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. 
John saw out of Jesus' mouth coming this double-edged sword. The Greek word is romphia, and it referred to a heavy, broad sword, a sword that was used to kill and destroy, one of those big, heavy swords you had to use with two hands. In contrast to the little uh, smaller, almost like a long dagger that the Roman soldier wore in his belt, uh, known as a machaira. That was used in hand-to-hand combat, more of a precision instrument or a weapon. But this was a very heavy, what was called a broadsword, used to just, you know, you know, just take somebody's head off. Archaeologists have found more than one skull in that area. Somebody that had died in battle with a big, <laughs> the skull was just split in two. No doubt a Ramphia got this guy. And that's what it was. It's a sword that was used to crush, to kill, to destroy. You know, the Word of God can either be both. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it said the Word of God is living and powerful. That's the Greek word makaira. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He set free.